0: I encourage you to turn to the book of John. We're finishing up chapter 1 today. We're going to be looking at a pretty lengthy section. We are all on the path and the pursuit of satisfaction. All of us. Now that path looks differently in all of us. What we, the aim that we have in mind, the goal that we have in mind is different, but we are all trying to find that point in our life when we are satisfied. But at one time or another, or maybe constantly, it's probably the better way to think of it, we're going to struggle with finding that moment, that position of satisfaction. We're going to find, we're, we're going to struggle with who we are so often we we could ask ourselves, well, what are we looking for when we're in that moment of struggle or pursuit? When we're struggling with the station of life that we're in, when we're struggling with the fact that something's not going the way that we thought it was going to, we could ask ourselves the question, what are we looking for? What are we aiming at? What do we think is going to equate that position of rest and satisfaction? And it's a good question to ask us, ask ourselves, because often the answers that we provide are so far off base that when we actually get to that moment of, okay, this is where I can rest, it looks very different than what we thought it was going to look like. There's a universal acknowledgement that all humanity carries, and that is this. Something needs to happen to make us okay with where we're at. Something needs to happen. No one is living and says, I'm good right here. Regardless of where you live, time you live, there's that thing inside of you that says, I need to strive for something. I need to figure out my calling in life. This is a struggle that starts at a very early age. I know I was speaking with some students and even in the past couple of months and asking them questions. They're almost done with high school and asking the questions, what do you want to do? And the other way to ask that question is, what do you think your calling is? And they were honest and said, I don't know. It's It's overwhelming. And we think to ourselves that until we find ourselves, until we figure out that thing that we're supposed to do, we cannot be whole. But here's the thing. As adults who are still living and still striving for that moment of perfection, we're still living in the same paradigm. We've experienced more, but we still know that fulfillment is hard to get because we are broken and we are weak. Here's a question that I want you to be thinking in your own mind today because it's going to be all over our text. What are you striving to attain? What are you today thinking that if I get this thing, I'm going to be okay? What are you looking for? What are you trying to achieve? Why are you working as hard as you are? What are you trying to find? I'll use the way that Jesus asks it. What are you seeking? This is the question that's going to open Jesus' narrative. This is the question that is the very first words that Jesus says in this gospel. What are you seeking? It's a question. It's a very simple question. But it's a question that is going to carry us through the rest of the gospel. Because every time Jesus comes in contact with somebody, he asks essentially this question. What are you seeking? What are you trying to find? What are you trying to attain? What are you aiming at to to think that when I get here, when I get there, when I get this thing, my life is going to be okay? Because we're all on that path towards satisfaction. Here's what's interesting now. We're going to see that the call that's offered to Jesus' first disciples, that's what we're going to look at in in our section today, that the call that was offered to Jesus' first followers is the exact same call that you and I receive when we become followers of God. What he does with these individuals is what God does in us. So with that, I want to read our first section. We're going to look at 135 all the way through the end of the chapter, 51, but I'm going to break it up into two readings. This is 135 through 42. And the next day, now think about it, we're in Jesus' first week of ministry as it relates to John. So he had just heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've seen John be questioned at this point. So this is day three. So on the next day, John was standing with his two disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. These two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Simon, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. How would you like to be known as the brother of somebody? Like, you can't even stand on your own. It's like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, he's the brother of so-and-so. That's basically what's going on here. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. As I said, a day has gone by since John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the God-man. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had continued to minister all this time, even from the first time that this... Delegation of leaders from Jerusalem came down and said, what are you doing? He has not stopped his baptizing. He's not stopped calling people into the wilderness, calling them to repentance. And along the way, as we saw yesterday in the story, Jesus comes and goes, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, today Jesus is walking by. He, so he's around John doing his thing. And this time there's two of John's disciples standing next to him He goes, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, there's a question that I, I want to ask of the text. Why were these two disciples not with John yesterday? When John pointed out Jesus for the first time, were they not there? Or did it take them overnight to figure out who this guy was? But clearly, something has happened. Because this instance, when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, these two disciples go, John, I love you, buddy, but I'm going with him. And immediately start to follow Jesus. Jesus. We'll get more in depth with this point um, when we get to chapter 3, 22 through 36. But I love John the Baptist's humility when it relates to Christ. The ministerial goal of John the Baptist was not only to provide a transition from water baptism to spirit baptism. But it was also a transition from having followers and being a, or ha- having disciples to being a disciple himself. What we can see from John's ministry is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he goes, here's Jesus. John is going, okay, you once followed me. Now follow him. And he's going to say, now follow him because I'm going to follow him. So John's platform was great and the entirety of John's platform goes downhill from here. It's everything that as we struggle with as humans. We want to see something grow. We don't want to see something shrink. We want to see more numbers. We don't want to see less numbers. But what we continually see with John the Baptist is once Jesus comes, he knows he must increase and I must decrease. But we'll get into more of that in chapter 3. These two disciples immediately leave John and follow Jesus. That tells us something about John the Baptist. John never lied to them or deceived them and told them what you're looking for can be found in me. He may have asked them, what are you seeking? What are you striving for? What, what path are you on? What, what goal do you have in mind to say, I can be satisfied here? But John never lied to them and said, oh, well, if you stick it out long enough, if you try hard enough, if you apply yourself here, you can reach that level of satisfaction. No, he was very clear. I'm only here to point you towards somebody who will satisfy you. He never lied to his followers in this manner. It is very clear. I am not enough, but I'm going to point you to the person who is enough. And so when these two disciples saw the person who is enough, saw the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, they immediately start following Jesus. And we see Jesus speak. It's a question. What are you seeking? This this question is pregnant with meaning in one sense it fits the narrative it fits the storyline on a human conversational level this question makes sense because imagine if all of a sudden you were walking by one day and then two jokers started following you as a human you're going to turn around and, and be like hey dude what are you doing what are you looking for why are you here why are you following me that's weird so he could be asking well what are you seeking are you looking for me do you want to know where the bathroom is do you want to know where the restaurant is? Like, what are you doing here But I think that there's far more going on with this question. Jesus was the master question asker. There was always the thing beneath the thing. And in this particular question, we have to acknowledge the greater, deeper question that's being asked here. What are you seeking? You see, Jesus has this ability to ask questions that pull out of us this level of Vulnerability and transparency that we otherwise would not have or see. It creates this space where we have to consider deeper realities. And I think that's what's going on here. What are you seeking? It's interesting. this exact same question is asked three other times in the gospel. It's asked in 184 and 18:7, and in 20 verse 15. All three of those times are around his death. So what I love is that this question, what are you seeking, starts Jesus' narrative in the gospel and essentially ends Jesus' narrative. And every time this question is far more not what are you seeking, but why are you seeking me? Why are you here? It may say what at the beginning of this question, but it is definitely a why question. Why leave John the Baptist and follow me? This is a question that we should ask ourselves. This is a question that if you're sitting here in this room and and, and you know Christ as your Savior, if you're a part of the church, you should ask yourself this. Why am I here? Why am I doing the things that I do? Why am I striving after those realities? As I said, that's the question that's going to carry us through this morning and all of our narrative. But let's ask this question. Why do you work as hard as you work? Why do you strive in your job as hard as you do? Why do you strive for perfection in the home in all of your tasks? We could ask another question. Why are you addicted to that thing that you just cannot put down? and you just keep running back to? That you don't want to call an addiction, but you know it's an addiction because addiction is, I could say, habit, but let's be real. It's an addiction because we have to do it. Why are we unwilling to give up that sin? The reason for all of these is because we believe it's going to satisfy us. We believe that if I try hard enough, it's going to ultimately fulfill me but here Jesus is saying what are you seeking he's really asking the same question what are you striving what do you think is going to fulfill you what do you think that when you get to the end you can say I can rest in this and this is complete that's the question he's asking these two disciples what are you trying to do in your life and, 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 and let's, let's be you know let's give these disciples some credit here they're clearly looking for something They're looking for something because they were with John the Baptist. If they weren't looking for anything, they wouldn't be with John the Baptist. They'd be doing their normal job. They are striving for that thing that's going to fulfill them. And now Jesus is asking, what is ultimately going to fulfill you? I think these two guys knew the answer. We need to find the Lamb of God because he takes away the sin of the world. He does that thing that nothing else can. The the thing that they're trying to satisfy themselves is... At the deepest reality of who they are, my sin needs to be atoned for. And I've heard you're the guy. And so they follow him. And they said to him, what I love is that if Jesus asked a uh, kind of a two-sided question, they ask definitely a two-sided question, an odd question. Because if if you were to ask me, what are you seeking? My first thing would not be, "Uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? Like if I walked up to you and you're like, hey, so what are you looking for? And somebody goes, where's your house? A well, little odd, right? But again, there's something beneath this question. It was rabbi, teacher, showing authority. We are with you. We are following you. Where are you staying? These disciples just aren't, aren't, aren't saying, um, hey, we, we'd like to send you a gift basket. No, rather he's saying, you are now our leader, you are now our teacher. In effect, they're saying, we, to where will you lead us? I also love that at the beginning of this chapter in verse 14, there's this, there's this call of the, the word of God will dwell among us. And now his disciples are asking, where do you dwell? Because we want to dwell with you. And Jesus welcomes them in. Says, come and you will see. Come And we will walk this life together. Essentially, come and we're now going together. Come on. I mean, it is immediate acceptance into Jesus' life. He goes, you're you're welcome. Come. Jesus knows what they're seeking far more than what what they know that they're seeking. Jesus knows what they need far more than what they need. And when he says, you can come with me, he goes, you're welcome. Notice none of the questions around this. Who are you? What's your family's name? What sins have you had? What baggage do you bring? Are you a good person? All of that stuff. So he didn't care about that. Come and you can be with me. So they came and they saw we were staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Here are these two disciples. But notice how many disciples were named. Just one. You go, well, what happened to the other guy? Why wasn't the other guy named? Was he not, uh, uh, you know, good enough to be named in the gospel? Well, the one disciple was Andrew, but the second guy is believed to be John, the gospel writer. See, what's interesting about this gospel, John, the gospel writer, walked with Jesus for all of his ministry, but he's never spoken of in person, in first person, in this book. It's believed that this is where John was called to be with Jesus. He was once following John the Baptist, and when he saw the Lamb of God, he quickly changed over to the Lamb of God and started following Jesus, but he's he's unwilling to list his own name in this gospel, at the very least, the way that he is described as the one whom Jesus loved. I think this shows John's humility and awe that he has in Jesus. John the Baptist and John the gospel writer have much in common. I think they both would say... Because John the Baptist did, I think John would agree with him. I am unwilling, unable to untie his sandal. I think what John is saying here is I am unable to be named among the Messiah. I can't even put my name in this book because I am so unworthy. So, what happens? Well, it's clear that these two guys understood who Jesus was. It's very clear from Andrew's testimony. We have found the Messiah. And what starts with these two disciples coming to Jesus is this frenzy of telling the people closest to them, we found the one that we have been waiting for. And the first person that Andrew goes and finds is his brother, Simon. And Jesus does something that is very unique. Changes his name He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, "You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter." None of the other disciples received a name change at their calling. This is unique. I mean, imagine when when Andrew, let's assume John, hears Jesus give Peter a name change. I'm sure they're like, "But hey, we missed that step. Can I get a name change too?" What's my new name? What's going on here? And then Peter, when he receives it, this guy who's called the Messiah, he walks up to them and all of a sudden you're like, I just met you and you're changing my name? Now, names are important during this time because it's not only a label, but it's also, it's, a, it's the character of a person. And the giving of a new name is essentially saying, I have the authority over you, to give you a new name, to give you a new description, to give you a new character. And what I love what happens in this description of Peter is it's a description of all of us when we become a disciple of Christ. Because this is how one commentator said it. The same man named Simon, yet now different and new, is also called Peter. Peter is a new man, yet not one thing in him made it so. It was only Jesus and his declaration that changed Peter. Now, we can see in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus says, you're the rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So we can see that this name change has some great significance here to it. But essentially, Peter, Simon, saying, you are going to have a new character, a new name declared upon you, not because you've earned it, not because you've done anything, not because you deserve it, but because I declared it upon you. Here's how this works is the same in our discipleship. When the Lord opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, when he regenerates our hearts, when he gives us the gift of faith, when we are saved, we immediately are declared right before God. That's justification. We are declared righteous before God. And declared is an important word. Because Peter was, or Simon was not made Peter and all of the character that was supposed to be wrapped around Peter. No, he was declared to be Peter. Now the Lord was going to do a work on his heart and he was going to change over time. But as, when we are declared righteous at the moment of our conversion, we are not righteous in the flesh. You are not righteous at all. Rather, you are declared righteous before God. This is why Martin Luther, in his description of a sinner and a a believer, rather, living on earth, says that we are saint and sinner simultaneously. Because our justification is a declaration upon us. I declare you to be a saint, but that is declared upon a sinner, somebody who is stuck in this body of death, who is stuck in the flesh, who wants to sin. And so, as a believer today, you are a saint, but you are definitely a sinner here In Peter's call in becoming a disciple of Christ, Christ declares upon him, you are going to be Cephas, Peter, because I declare you to be. Jesus is now fully at the center of our narrative. And he's accumulating disciples and changing names and making waves. Let's continue to see how he continues to call these disciples. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. There's a couple of things about this. Notice the wording. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said, follow me. It's very simple here. Jesus decided He determined, he declared, we're going to Galilee. Why? I'm sure Andrew, Simon, Peter, John now were like, whatever, we'll we'll go wherever. But why, why, Jesus, why are we going to Galilee? Because I got to go find this guy, Philip. I have to find him. He's not going to find me on this time. I'm going to find him. You see, Andrew and John were with John the Baptist and saw Jesus. They found Jesus. Simon was brought to Jesus from his brother. This time, Philip is found and called. And it's a very simple call, follow me. So the question that we definitely should ask about this is, why Philip? What about Philip, Jesus, that you left the town that you were in, that you journeyed to Galilee, and you found this guy? But that's a question that we all need to ask. Why God did you find me? Why, why did you save me? Because let me assure you, if, if you are here today and you are thinking that the reason that you were in Christ and saved you because you were smart enough to find Christ, that's not the case. Because when we are, as Ephesians says, dead in our trespasses and sins, we're not looking for anything. We're still stuck in the lie that the world tells us and our sin tells us that all of these other things are going to satisfy. It's not until Christ opens our eyes, regenerates our hearts, that we even realize that our ultimate satisfaction is found in Christ. So the question that all of us need to ask is, why me? And if I could even press that a little further, if you're not asking that question, at some point, you might not get the weight of of God's gospel and grace because there's no reason for me to be saved except for his glory. So he finds Philip and he, that he determined to find and he commands him, follow me. And it's done, complete. He does it. There's no questioning. He goes, okay, I follow. I said earlier that the call that's offered to Jesus' first disciples is the exact same call that you and I receive when we become followers of Christ. And this is, this is what I mean by that. The way that Jesus makes his disciples, he calls them to himself. They're not, they're not robots here. They're real flesh and blood people just like you and I are. But when they come face to face with the reality of who Christ is, they realize, I need to go with him. This is the answer for what I need. And as his disciples, Jesus is calling us too, but look what he's calling us to do. It's a very simple call. Follow me. The world that we live in, the Christian world that we live in here in America can be very confusing at times. Because with the rise of the internet and the ability to spread information all around. There's so many people out there that want to tell you how to live a, your best Christian life. They want to say, if you're Christ's disciples, this is what you must do. This is what you should do. This, You will be better if you do blank it can be very discouraging and very difficult and very overwhelming because our life as Christ's disciples can be just filled with all of these really good things that we should do that are placed at a position that just end up being burdens and bondages and not anything that's good. I want to pick on one of these for a moment and and I, I, I do this humbly but I think that this illustrates this point well. There was a book that went through American evangelicalism with t- within the past decade. Probably, it probably came out 10, 12 years ago, and it took the church by storm. It was a book entitled *Radical* by David Platt, and I think that's the author. Sorry, don't, it, the book title is *Radical*. I, I don't want to say the wrong guy wrote it. There's nothing wrong with anything in the book. Because what essentially what Radical does is this is how you can live your life for Christ. The problem is he didn't say can. He said should. And what I have experienced as a pastor is individuals who locked on to that idea of, okay, in order to be the best disciple possible, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And they did it. They sold their large homes. They moved into smaller homes. They moved overseas. They did all of these really great things for God. And in the end, it ran over them. Because they realized that what they were actually trying to do was outrun God. What they actually thought was in order for me to be a disciple, I have to do X, Y, and Z. In order for me to be a follower of God, I've got to blaze a trail for him. And it overwhelmed them because they couldn't do it. Notice what Jesus is calling Philip to and you to. Follow me. You're not gotta blaze a trail. You don't have to do any radical things for me. As my friend Danny Deffenbaugh says, or he's I guess he stepped out. We're called to live radically ordinary lives for Christ. Because when we do that, we, we realize that we're following him. He's done everything. We can step back and go, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and it's complete and it's final and it's done and I can't add anything to it and the only thing that I get to do is live in that glory and if I want to go do some of those awesome things that books and Christian leaders tell us to do, awesome. But guess what? If you don't do that, you're still good with God because his, you following Him does not mean that you have to do those radical things. You following him means that you rest in what he has done. One one more guy. This Nathaniel dude. Philip found him and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Philip knows his Old Testament Bible here. And, and I, it's also great. Philip is going to be one of these chief evangelists. He's going to walk around and go, we found him, we found him, we found him. And he finds Nathaniel He goes, we found him. The guy that we've been waiting for. The guy that Moses and all the prophets have been pointing to. Again, think back, Genesis 3.15, that seed that was planted that grew over all of the Old Testament, that guy that we've been waiting for. We found him. Now, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he said, well, this is Jesus of Nazareth. I, I, I love this because this is a little bit sarcastic. And at the same time, has some rivalry in it. Like, you wonder what their version of, like, football teams, like the Nazareth football team, and I don't know where this guy's from at this point. Like, they go, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, I, I, I don't think that that's a notable enough town for anything good to come out of. I mean, wouldn't you want to be from Bethlehem? Wouldn't you want to be from Jerusalem? Wouldn't you want to be the guy from Galilee? The guy from Nazareth? Has anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip just says, listen, listen, come and see. I realize that the, the best evangelistic strategy that we see in the gospel is simply this. You don't believe me? Let me show you Christ, because that is enough. There's no pomp and circumstance. There's no theological diatribe. There's nothing. It's just come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This isn't Jesus mocking Nathanael. This is Jesus saying, this is a good dude. This is a guy without vile. This is somebody who has been searching scripture and has been searching for me. This is an Israelite indeed. Indeed. Now Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? I, I, just, I just learned about you. I'm, I'm sure that I've never seen you before. I've, I haven't heard of you. How do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Something happened in Nathanael's life under this fig tree, that also could be an idiom for his home or an actual fig tree, whatever. That when Jesus says, listen, you're searching for something. You're asking a question. You're longing for something. Jesus is pointing to the thing that you're looking for, that you were looking for under that fig tree. I saw you. I was with you. If you'll notice, all of these individuals Are people waiting for the Messiah and seeking something else? They've come to this point to realize all that this world has to offer is not going to satisfy. And in Nathaniel's case, it's this crying out to the Lord: "What's happening here? Lord, give me something." Here's his answer, Rabbi: You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Sometimes saying, wow, you saw me? I thought I was alone. I thought I was able to hide. I thought I was able to have those questions in a safe space. You saw me? Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened in the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. We're gonna read the phrase truly, truly multiple times in this gospel. And the only person who says it is Jesus. Jesus. Truly, truly essentially means amen and amen. It's a statement that can only be uttered by the person who's standing before God and speaking things only God can affirm and bring to pass. So this is Jesus in his first authoritative speech, I'm going to tell you something that's going to come true. But when he says, I say to you, he changes the voice. It goes from singular to plural. Essentially what he is doing is he's looking and going, listen, because I said this to you, well guess what? I say to you and speaks to all of his disciples and all of his followers. Now what does he say? You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What's the statement saying? What's Jesus declaring to us? This this entire statement echoes Jacob's vision of the ladder and the stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and with the angels of God ascending and descending on it. This is Genesis 28. Now just think of the, the, the backstory on Jacob's life for a moment. He just stole Esau's birthright. He's kicked out of his home. He runs off into the wilderness and he goes as far as he possibly can until he gets so tired that he looks at a rock and says, that would be a comfortable pillow. So... The dude's wore out. So he lays down, puts a rock underneath his head, and he has a vision, he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder stretching from heaven and earth, and angels are going up and down. And he wakes up and he calls the place Bethel because that is where God is. But what Jesus is saying here is truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven and earth open. What he, it, this is an emphatic statement that Jesus is saying, heaven is, and oh, by the way, always was, The opening, I'm sorry, Jesus is and always was the opening of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who's going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. I'm the one that is going to make it possible for you to one day, or rather now, commune with God again. See, the reason that we strive and struggle for that satisfaction is we know that we're missing something. We know that left to ourselves, we're incomplete. We know that if we don't have some outside calling and we achieve that thing, then we're going to be found wanting. That's why we work so hard at our jobs and we strive for perfection in in, in everything. That's why we numb that pain with addiction. That's why we run after these sins and we go, but that feels good because we know that we need something. Is what Jesus is saying. The thing that you need, the connection that you were created to have is going to be opened by me. One, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Isaiah seven fourteen, and also Matthew 1, says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The son of God came to earth, bridged that gap, took on flesh to live among us, to dwell with us, to be with us. You know why? So that he could open up access for us to heaven. So that we could one day again have communion with the Holy God. Not because we have lived these radical lives and strive for perfection and made it. But because he lived the radical life. The sinless life. And he offers it to us. He declares it upon us. As we head towards communion today. I mean what a, what a great reminder that we have each week. Of the connection that we have with God. It is not found in the works of our hands. It is not found in the radical things that you've done, as good as they are. It is not found in your striving. It is found in Christ. And as we get to partake of the elements today, we are reminded of who made our access to God complete Christ, by his blood and by his body. If you're here with us this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, first, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here. But in this moment, I would ask that you let the elements pass you by. Because we don't want these elements to confuse you. You see, Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, follow me and you have to partake of the sacraments on an individual level in order to remain good with me. That turns this into a work. And we don't want this to be a work for you. We want this to be a blessing where we can look outside of ourselves and go, I can't do anything. Christ did it all. So just let these elements pass you by. But if you are a believer today and you are taking it and when we hold these elements, just remember the only body and blood that Christ is worried about and God is worried about is found in Christ. You can rest in that. Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the story. Lord, for us all today, I I just want to confess that we always fall back into thinking that something else besides you is going to satisfy. Idols that creep in blind us to the truth that you and you alone give us peace and rest Father whatever that idol is that thing that we're striving for when, when we ask ourselves what are we seeking and Lord help us to repent of that help us to lay that down help us to come running back to you of knowing that the only thing that is ultimately going to satisfy is you and you have accomplished all that is required for us and we can place our faith in your finished work. Father, thank you for the ability to proclaim that gospel this morning. In your name, amen.